Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Language. I'm Chris Cummins, and today I'll be talking to Professor David Crystal about his book, Just a Phrase I'm Going Through, My Life in Language. Professor Crystal is not only a great popularizer of linguistics, but an enormously prolific author and editor. Today we'll be talking about some aspects of his long and varied research career, including his time on the survey of English usage, his extensive contributions to clinical linguistics, and the future of linguistic technologies. We'll also talk about how he has brought together his passion for the theatre with his work both in historical linguistics and his enthusiasm for the maintenance of endangered languages. Hello, David. Hi. Today we're talking to Professor David Crystal about his book, Just a Phrase I'm Going Through, My Life in Language. I've read it and recommend it wholeheartedly. It's a fascinating account of a remarkable career, but also an entertaining, candid and sometimes very affecting memoir. David, Normally I would start this interview by asking you to tell us a bit about yourself, but that doesn't seem quite right when we're discussing your autobiography. Rather, I'll ask, what prompted you to embark on this venture? Well, you call it an autobiography, and in a sense I suppose it is, but you have to make a distinction here between an autobiography and a memoir, and the book is actually more a memoir than an autobiography. Uh, The subtitle is crucial, it's my life in language, not, as it were, my life. I mean, that's a, it's the distinction between autobiography and memoir is quite an interesting one. Um, I remember Gore Vidal uh, once saying that autobiography is, is history. You have to get your facts right. Um, whereas a memoir, as its name suggests, is a, is a memory exercise. You don't have to get your facts right. <laughs> um, and actually, uh, as you reflect on a professional career and, and how it arose, Um, you often find that you're doing something very different than the kind of um, issue that arises when you're writing a a pure autobiography. So in in this book, um, you don't actually get a a lot of detail that you would get in a straightforward autobiography. For example, you know, I I don't tell you what my taste in wine might be, for instance, or whatever. You know, these are the sort of details that often crop up in in real autobiographies. No, this is a a life seen through the prism of uh, the the notion of language. It didn't start out that way. Um, The original idea was uh, to be more purely autobiographical. um, And the the origin of it, I guess, arose around the kitchen table. Um, You're you're sitting there with uh, your family. And certainly when the kids um, arrived and uh, wanted to uh, have a natter about something, the older kids now, I mean, now they've left home and I'd tell them a story and they'd say, hey, dad, you know, you ought to write that down. It's very interesting. And I suddenly realized that there were lots and lots of stories that um, might be of a general interest. And so it it started there, really. But when you when you look at the whole range of activities that you could possibly handle in a personal sort of way it was I quickly realized that there needed to be some sort of filter some sort of discipline which would enable a selection to be practicably published um, you know yep. a 700 page work but something more more sensible and that's how it started. Well, that's interesting you say that because um, you write in the 
epilogue of your book, um, one has to ask what it is in a life story which people find useful. And I've no doubt that a lot of people will find this uh, this particularly useful as a as an indication of what it's like to be a professional linguist and to follow the kind of career path that you have. Was that a was that a consideration sort of uppermost in in your selection? Uh, most certainly. I, the, the the important thing I think is to recognise that uh, not through any choice of anybody, but I happen to have lived through the period when linguistics was being developed as a, an academic subject around the world. When I started out in the business, there were no linguistics degrees and the subject was really of rather peripheral interest to most people and very few professional linguists around. And at the end of the career, as it were, it's a, it's a major subject with thousands of linguists all over the world and lots of courses all over the place at all sorts of levels. So the question of how, how one gets from that first very primitive stage to the much more sophisticated stage there is now was very definitely a perspective. Um, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time and uh, telling some of the stories that relate to that evolution of a professional subject, I think, makes the book really rather interesting. And I'm surprised that other people ha- hadn't already done it, you know, you know, because lots of linguists around that could uh, um, write this kind of perspective. But, um, but none of them had. One of the things I was looking for when I started the exercise was to look for precedents, uh, models, uh, there are other subjects have their models, you know, there are biographies in, in hist- autobiographies or, or memoirs in history and literature and science and every subject. And I looked for them in language and could find you know, hardly anything. And so I realized that um, it was a question perhaps of starting a genre as much as continuing one. Yes, it's interesting you say how you were considering yourself to be in a fortunate place at the uh, at the right time. In reading your description of your early life, it's very clear that considerations such as um, historical context and most especially multilingualism have always been very um, prominent in your experience. Do you feel your path was in some sense determined from an early age? To be a linguist, a professional linguist, is only to go up a grade from what from the interest that everybody has in language. Um, I, I have never met anybody who isn't interested in language in some shape or form, whether it be, you know, interested in usage or or the, where place names come from or what the names of first names of their children are or whatever the question happens to be. Accents, dialects, the lot. There's a curiosity, I think, that people have about language, um, which is pretty universal. Um, if you're going to be a professional linguist, I think that curiosity needs to be sharpened in some way. And in in many cases, uh, and certainly in my case, that curiosity was sharpened indeed by growing up in a multilingual area. But in a multilingual area where my ability wasn't commensurate with the language range that I experienced around me. I grew up in North Wales, in Holyhead, which at the time in the 1940s was very strongly English speaking and very strongly Welsh speaking. And also, to some extent, Irish speaking, because Holyhead is, after all, the nearest point you can get to the old country um, without getting your feet wet. And there are lots of Irish in town and Gaelic was was around. Uh, But it was Welsh and English that were the main things. And I remember very clearly um, being confused by the Welsh. I was being brought up in a monolingual home. Um, English was the only language there. Uh, I did have some relatives who were Welsh speaking, but they were sort of on the fringe. 
And so when I walked around the streets and heard Welsh all over the place, I found myself very curious about why I could understand this person and not understand that. Um, and I remember very early on, uh, I know how early on it was because my, my mum told me I was about three uh, when I was asking questions about the meaning of different words in English and Welsh, and in particular why I couldn't understand a particular word which seemed very like an English word and yet didn't mean the same thing. Um, and so that kind of curiosity was there right at the outset. And I think as one grows up and encounters more and more language situations, that, uh, that, that fascination with language inevitably grows. Well, I think that's very true. Um, although, given your much wider range of uh, interests and knowledge, um, would it be fair to say you have a heightened sort of aesthetic appreciation to encounters with knowledge with knowledge generally yes yeah um that's a difficult one uh, i i don't recall having that kind of general fascination very early on um over and above what i suppose is uh, is is an everyday awareness of of uh, issues um no, the, the fascination with knowledge came much later when I was asked to edit general encyclopedias and I suddenly realized that there were a whole world of worlds out there waiting to be explored and somebody was going to pay me to explore them. No, the, the early period uh, was, was almost entirely uh, language orientated. There were lots of subjects I was simply not interested in at all um, or not very good at either. Uh, maths being a good case in point, never found it very easy to do maths in school, I recall. Um, no, it was language that was the, the driving force. And where exactly that interest in language comes from over and above the general situation I found myself in is very difficult to be clear about. Um, maybe it was that I was exposed to other languages quite early, uh, to Latin, for example, uh, very early on because I, I served mass at the local Catholic church. And there you had at the time you had to learn Latin in order to converse unintelligibly, I suppose, with the priest. But it was a fascinating experience nonetheless. And then uh, a little later, uh, being in this part of Wales, um, there is a, a strong emphasis on arts and literature in particular, as the Eisteddfod tradition illustrates. Um, and in primary school, I remember uh, being absolutely fascinated with the whole task of learning to write and learning to spell. I found these things really interesting. Uh, one was recommended to, to write creatively as much as possible. One wrote poems, you know, things of this kind. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you wrote a reasonable poem, you, you could read it in front of the whole school and you were called a poet and this News got out around the community, all of this, you know. So it was a very much a, a, a language literature creative experience rather than knowledge in general. I think certainly the creativity of the literature side of language was always a strong feature from the earliest age. And when I went to university, one of the reasons why I chose the university that I did was to find a course which balanced language and literature. And that balance has been with me ever since. Uh, you describe how your interest in linguistics was nurtured at UCL after some um, something of a full start when you first <laughs> encountered it. <laughs> yes, right. So, um, yeah, the language interest grew and grew and grew uh, during you know, childhood, teenage years. Um, I eventually learned Welsh uh, because partly because of 
it was taught in school and partly because my Welsh-speaking relatives um, were keen that I should do so. Um, in secondary school, I learned French and Latin uh, more fully than before and Greek, classical Greek, and uh, experienced a couple of other languages due to the other languages that were being taught in the school. And so when it came to the sixth form and I was choosing a university, I very definitely wanted a language based institution, though without losing the literature, because I also was very keen on on Shakespeare and and things at the time. So university college was a good case in point where there was this lovely balance of Lang and Lit, you know, 50 percent language courses, 50 percent Lit courses. And uh, when I arrived, uh, I was prepared to. Uh, explore a world of language reality in the sense of um, uh, the modern usage of languages and and how they arose and all the all the fascinating aspects of of the problems that you encounter when you experience language learning and multilingualism and the like. What I got was a pretty um, pure traditional philological approach to the languages of the past which, fascinating as it was, was being presented in a way that bore very little relationship to the realities of language as I was expecting them to be. Um, traditional philology, as many people know, is very much based on the analysis of old written texts. There isn't very much phonetic awareness that accompanies it. Um, the, uh, the, the, the emphasis is on explaining the meticulous detail of the way in which uh, sounds in particular, but also to some extent words and grammar evolved over millennia. And uh, while this is absolutely fascinating and I've never lost my love of it, I did want it to be related to the realities of present day um, linguistic experience. In particular, I wanted to hear these sounds and work out how they were used in real life. It's all very well going through a poem like Beowulf and understanding how the words evolved in history, but I wanted to know how Beowulf actually sounded in the meat halls of Anglo-Saxon times. And nobody would tell me. Um, And in particular, they wouldn't even give me examples of how some of these uh, words were to be pronounced because there was a reluctance to, to commit to a particular pronunciation as opposed to others. You know, nobody actually knows precisely the accents of those olden days, but you can get approximations. And that was one reason I found the subject um, becoming uh, a little arcane and a little dusty, as it were. And then the other reason was that when I actually encountered the subject of linguistics for the first time uh, in one course in my first year there, it was being taught in a very abstruse way. It's a way I would never dream of teaching linguistics um, myself. We were presented with a long reading list of all the famous books in linguistics, starting with the Saussure's um, introduction. Uh, Bloomfield's language, Ogden and Richard's The Meaning of Meaning, and I forget the others, about half a dozen. We were told to read one book a week. Um, And any of you who have tried to uh, understand Ogden and Richard's The Meaning of Meaning, um, especially at that sort of age, will realise how impossible a task it is. It's extremely brilliant book. I understand it well now, but at the time it just I was just lost. And even Bloomfield's language was difficult to grasp because it required an understanding of phonetics, especially with the sounds that were being presented about American Indian languages. And nobody had taught us any phonetics at all. And so the examples didn't mean very much because I couldn't interpret them. Anyway, to cut the story short, 
uh, at the uh, end of that course, I did an examination in my very first course in linguistics and got a very fine D. Um, it was a fail. Um, and I thought, that's it. Uh, this is not a subject for me. Um, the whole of the language experience of the first year, with one or two exceptions, uh, it wasn't entirely a disaster. But I ended up at the end of my first year thinking that uh, my second year was going to be predominantly literature. Um, I was going to choose more of the literature options apart from the obligatory language options, which one couldn't avoid. And so fast forward to the beginning of the second year. Um, and I sat reluctantly in my first history of the language class, which was going to be given by a character called Randolph Quirk. Um, he walked in and I have to say that an hour later, everything changed uh, an hour later. He restored my faith in the possibilities that language could be a fascinating subject. And from then on, I chose my language options, restored the balance that I had before, revisited the areas of language that I'd found difficult in the first year, found that they weren't as hard as I thought they were. And the rest is history. And within a relatively short time, you were working with him at the Survey of English Usage. Yes, I, after, after my degree. Um, <coughs> He was looking, he had started the survey of English usage in 1959, which is, or just after he arrived there. Um, and I started my undergraduate course in 59. By 62, he'd got the survey up and running and uh, he'd got some funding. And people were starting to do research work with him and he was looking for a couple of researchers. And I was lucky enough to, to be one of them. Um, <clears throat> so I worked on the survey for a year. And uh, because of the kind of angle that I was bringing to the subject, um, we were able to work together on, on, on a book uh, about that aspect of the work. You see, what had happened was that uh, when I found that uh, language was really a good subject after all, uh, one of the things I did was follow Randolph Quirk's recommendation and get over to the phonetics department and learn about phonetics, which I did, um, and spent a couple of years doing specialist courses there. So I ended up being a bit of a phonetician as much as a grammarian or anything else. And as a result, when I was asked to work on the survey, it was that phonetics aspect of my background that he found valuable. I became responsible for doing the transcription of the spoken texts that were being analysed from the point of view of intonation and tone of voice and all the other features of the voice that you get in an everyday conversation or in an interview or in any kind of spoken manifestation. And this involved um, developing a new kind of transcription, a new kind of prosodic analysis, um, which included all the vocal effects that actually turn up in, in these uh, speech interactions. And I was the one that was predominantly associated with that. Um, and as a result, at the end of the year, we published a book together on its uh, systems of prosodic and paralinguistic features in English. So that was a, uh, an immensely useful learning curve for me, learning how to write a book in association with somebody like him. You describe another curious experience of the survey of English usage, an interaction with a shoe retailer who possibly didn't share your uh, inborn intellectual <laughs> curiosity about language. Can you tell us about that? <laughs> oh, yeah, well, that was fun. I mean, I can't remember the details. Uh, that, I mean, I've given a version in the book, which is, as I Remember it. Remember, a memoir is 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 a memory and whose memories are ever going to be accurate. But it was definitely something along the following lines. Um, 
I was uh, sitting in the survey office one day. Uh, we got lots of phone calls, you see, a survey of English usage. Everybody's interested in English usage, and people would ring up and, and ask questions about language every day of the week. Um, and everybody was told, you know, if you're on duty, as it were, treat them with respect and, and do the answer best you can. If you can't answer it, say we'll call you back. This is what we did. Um, and one day I was the duty officer, as it were, and I was sitting there and the phone rings and a voice said that they were from a certain company, shoe company in the Strand. And they were developing a new series of advertisements for their shoes and they needed some language. Um, and, and did we have any? Uh, and I said, what? Um, and they said, you know, we want some vocabulary for, for shoes. And I, I, I said, why? Well, because we, we need words that will sell our shoes better. What sort of words do you have? They asked me, and I sort of stammering away at the other end, trying to work out what on earth was going on. So I said, oh, yes, sir, of course. Sorry to be so slow. Yes, we do a very fine line in. And then we went on, you know, nouns at such and such a price and adjectives at such and such a price. And we do a very good line in verbs, too, at such and such a price and adverbs, too, at such and such a price. And. I uh, gave him a full account of all the services that we could offer and what the cost was. And he said, oh, fine, fine, let, I'll, I'll order. And then he ordered a certain number of adjectives, a certain number of nouns and so on. And I said, uh, fine, we'll make sure that we we'll mm -hmm. deliver these to you. Just let us have an official order form and we'll get back to you. And I laughed and laughed and laughed and the phone was put down and went over to the gang that were in the Marlborough Arms round the corner and told them all about it and everybody thought this was a wonderful story and what a great jape it was and who did it and nobody would admit to it because of course a couple of days later it transpired that it wasn't a joke at all um, and indeed through the post came an order form from this firm in the Strand asking for a dozen adjectives, a dozen nouns or whatever it was <laughs> we all looked at this order form with some bemusement and realised that we, we had to now uh, solve it somehow and so we put our heads together I was lumbered with the job actually because it was my problem so I went to Roger's thesaurus and all sorts of other places and cooked up words for shoes in different ways and put a, a lot together and sent them off and uh, again a little later we got a check and a thank you note saying this is extremely useful, very informative. Thank you very much. It's really going to be helpful. And there's the here's the check. So, I mean, there's a career there for somebody, I think, it seems to me. I, ironically, you know, 50 years on, that's exactly how words are being used these days. If you go to the Internet now, words are actually being sold um, in order to improve Internet rankings for advertisers. So in actual fact, we were probably 50 years ahead of our time. Hmm. And from the uh, survey of English usage, did you feel your, your career as an academic was assured or was then proceeding along fairly natural lines? Yes, I think so. Uh, one of the things that happens when you become a research assistant in a, a university department like that is you, you meet colleagues from not just your department, from, but from other departments as well. And the people who had previously been teaching me were now my colleagues and to some extent even beginning to be my friends. And, and that's very good for your ego. You know, if you're any good at your job, they, they immediately tell you how good you are and also how bad you are, too. I mean, they don't pull any punches. If you say some rubbish, they tell you it's rubbish. Um, they don't mess about. 
but on the whole, I, I felt that I did have uh, a unique selling point, as it were. I had this uh, phonetic specialty in an English department, which on the whole didn't have any phoneticians in it. So I was you know, unique there, as it were. And when I met the phoneticians, I had the kind of English language grammar and so on background, which they didn't have. So each side saw me as a little bit of a, of a kind of interesting guy. Um, and as a result, they were very clear in my mind that um, in, in their mind that they that I had an academic career in front of me. I, I was a bit uncertain about it, but uh, uh, I always did have that kind of research interest. My nickname as an undergraduate was Prof. Uh, so, so that probably indicates something. Um, and anyway, I just I just uh, took this news as it came to me. People would say after after a few months, oh, there's a job turning out. Do you want to apply for it? You know, I would say no, no. I'm happy where I am at the moment. Uh, but eventually, a job arrived at the University of Bangor, which did seem tailor made for me. Uh, and it was pointed out to me by one of the phoneticians, and uh, they said, no, this really is the kind of thing you ought to be doing. And so I applied for it and, and actually got it. So that was really the start. Um, you're very concerned with objectivity and balance in your approach to language, and you talk approvingly of uh, Jim Sled's seminars in 1963. I think that was at Bangor, am I right? Uh, give uh, you... that, was at, that was at London. Oh, sorry. Yeah, he came to, he was a visiting scholar in London for a few months, and we were all in the uh, postgraduate seminar, and he addressed us there. And you, uh, you talk of him giving you a sense of both the strengths and problems of generative grammar, which of course was then on the, on the point of its ascent to uh, prominence. Do you feel it's become harder to experience that kind of balanced approach in linguistics now? Oh, no, I think it's become easier now. Uh, there, there was a time when it was very, very hard. When you get an orthodoxy like that, um, you know, dominating the thinking, uh, then it actually is quite hard to think outside the box, as it were, think in a different way, uh, because everybody is, is you know, following the same general path. I was very lucky. Um, the people that most influenced me were all sceptics, were all people who were, were very um, critical of uh, theory as of an individual theory as being the total explanation of everything. Um, they, these are people who were interested in the history of ideas, who saw how theories come and go. They were also people who were well schooled in the um, in, in the British tradition of being sceptical about things, um, which uh, I think is, is very much an important part of, of, of British linguistics. Anyway. Um, Randolph Quirk himself was always very critical of uh, theoretical excess, as it were, very strong, had his feet very firmly placed on the ground about making sure that empirical work is the test bed for any theory and that no theory is going to explain every, all the mess of data that we see around us. Um, Jim Sled uh, introduced precisely that kind of orientation when he gave us an introduction to, at the time, syntactic structures, uh, because this was 1963 and aspects of the theory of syntax was still a couple of years away. Um, so uh, one, one had that perspective. When I got my first job, my um, full-time academic job at Bangor, I met Frank Palmer and Peter Matthews, two of the greatest sceptics in the history of linguistics, really. Um, every theory is rubbish. 
but every theory has something to offer and one wants to develop a kind of synthesis of the best in order to explain the realities of language. And so uh, because I had these influences on me, I developed myself a very, very strong um, scepticism about the role of theory, even though recognizing totally the importance of theory as, as an explanation. But I became uh, very much a, uh, an empirical linguist, a descriptive linguist, <coughs> somebody who uh, wants to test hypotheses um, very, very firmly in relation to the realities of data. Um, and uh, that's the way it's been ever since. Do you think that attitude um, facilitated or, or contributed to your move from more theoretical to more applied linguistics? Yes, it did. But the applied interest is very has very different motivations, um, I think. Uh, I don't think anybody ever sets out to be an applied linguist. Um, at least, well, I certainly didn't anyway. I just was interested in language uh, and languages and wanted to find out as much as possible about them. It was very definitely a general interest, a pure interest. Language is an end in itself. Um, but certainly at the time and certainly since, of course, and especially today, people don't leave you alone um, because language problems are ubiquitous. Uh, everybody's got a language problem of some sort and some language problems are more, more more dominant or universal than, than, than others. And so very early on, the phone starts ringing. It always starts with a phone call, these days an email, of course, um, in which somebody says, look, I've got a problem. Can you help? And at that point, even though you're unprepared for it, <coughs> you realize that um, you've got to help. Uh, you can't not. Uh, it, it's the fascination of the problem that, that draws you in the applied direction. So in the early days, the problems were coming from English language teaching, English language teachers who were trying to teach the English language to groups of foreigners all over the world. English slowly becoming a global language in those days um, and finding that the descriptions of English that they were using in order to teach simply didn't match the realities of the kind of modern English that was being used around their students and wanting help. So the ELT world was the probably the first area that was waving from the wings and the, and the, the visits and the, the, the research was pulled in that direction um, very, very quickly. Uh, and it's been that way ever since the phone call, my the next phone call. I can't remember the order, but, uh, you know, soon when I went to Reading, one of the earliest phone calls was from the education department with people concerned about language acquisition and the teaching of reading and writing and spelling. Um, could we help? And indeed, there are ways in which one can help. Another phone call was from the local hospital um, in which children and adults with language disorders needed a more sophisticated language approach. Can you help? And over the years, those phone calls increased in frequency and I found myself being pulled in all kinds of different directions. As I say, it wasn't anticipated, but you can't not help. Uh, you know, a linguist is a human being as well as a linguist. And these are the human problems that, that one wants to try and um, assist in. And ultimately, you were quite influential in improving the processes by which um, some of these uh, some of these topics could be addressed without without needing to be on the phone all the time to individual cases. You can't do everything. Um, and perhaps in a sense, one of the fortunate things has been the way in which these phone calls and the work that follows from them uh, was spaced out over a period of time. 
the English language teaching was a very dominant motif while I was at Bangor between 1963 and 65. And while that stayed a long time afterwards, uh, a lot of the basic thinking I was able to do in association with the groups of foreign teachers who were doing their courses at Bangor at the time. I mean, they were the people who taught me what their issues were, what their problems were. They were the people who asked me the questions that I realized I had to find an answer to. And so over that first couple of years, my thinking was almost entirely in relation to English language teaching. Um, when I went to Reading, although that issue continued, um, it didn't require as much uh, basic applied research thinking in order to maintain it. And so when the new phone calls came along, um, it was possible to devote more energy to those. And certainly the clinical area uh, was the one that attracted me most. Um, and as it proved to be, was the was the motivation for a research and uh, an applied research development and uh, pedagogical development, which went on for, well, the best part of 20 years. So it's my responsibility at Reading to develop the whole of what eventually came to be called the clinical linguistics uh, approach to language disability. Um, and this all started with uh, close encounters uh, with individual um, language handicapped children at the local hospital, the Royal Berkshire Hospital in Reading, and then working with speech therapists um, over a period of time. Uh, eventually developing a, a degree course for speech therapists at the university and developing a whole set of clinical procedures which would enable therapists to work uh, more efficiently with the language problems of the kids in their care and eventually the adults in their care as well. So, yes, that was a um, another question, another case of being in the right place at the right time. Uh, I don't think it would have happened if there hadn't been a local hospital that was particularly interested in trying to find solutions to these problems and a university that was sympathetic with the need to provide academic answers to these solutions and a political climate also, which was right at the time, because um, the, uh, there was a government report on speech therapy services, which was published in 1972, which actually said that linguistics and the study of language had to be the core of the speech therapist's discipline. And this kind of evolving political climate was one which um, complemented the personal interest that I had in the subject. It all sort of came together. Things happen like that sometimes, that the whole a series of different initiatives somehow complement each other and make a solution inevitable. That's um, another interesting example from your from your career of what you sort of describe as as filling a, as filling a niche or being in the being in the right place to uh, to supply something that was lacking. And it also seems to be something where uh, you must feel an investment of effort, a great deal of effort on your part at the time has been enormously rewarding in terms of the, uh, the long term consequences. Yes, uh, clinical linguistics is now a um, a, a real subject. Uh, taught all over the place, um, recognised and so on. Uh, and it's great to have been uh, in at the very beginning of that. Um, the thing is, you see, that it wasn't difficult in a sense. It, it isn't difficult. And at the time, it certainly wasn't difficult. Still isn't difficult to start up new subjects in linguistics, especially on the applied side. Um, the, the one thing about about language is that it's it's always changing and, and new situations evolve and new problems evolve and it's perfectly possible to 
uh, develop a new subject, not quite overnight, but in an unpredictable sort of way. I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, if you'd said to me in 2003, to go to a more recent period of time now, that I would be spending a fair part of the next 10 years um, working on applied historical linguistics, I'd have said you were nuts. Um, I had no concept of what an applied historical linguistics might be. Um, applied historical linguistics. I mean, historical linguistics is the study of the history of language, but to apply it, who'd be interested in applying that? But in 2004, there's a phone call from Shakespeare's Globe in London who are interested in wanting to develop uh, a, a production of Romeo and Juliet in original pronunciation, meaning the pronunciation of, that Shakespeare would have encountered in the 1600, early 1600s. And would I be able to help? Well, you know, what? Uh, of course. Uh, and suddenly you, you realize that there's a completely new domain here of interpreting the historical phonology of early modern English on stage in a way that hadn't really been done before, or at least not for 400 years. Uh, and uh, since then, 10 years later, nearly, um, I've been involved in developing uh, that kind of approach um, really quite substantially with all kinds of other productions too. Well, to take a second example, if you'd said to me in uh, 19, uh, late 1980s uh, that I'd be spending um, a fair chunk of my life working with commercial advertisers, uh, I'd have said you were nuts. Um, but what happened was the arrival of the Internet. Suddenly a whole... The Internet changed everything as far as language is concerned. A whole new domain of language uh, emerges online with all kinds of different considerations. And some of the problems that come with searching and ensuring that uh, language is treated sensitively online suddenly become big issues. And a few years later, I find myself heavily involved in developing procedures to improve search, to improve relevance. And I find myself in an Internet uh, specialist for a while. Applied Internet linguistics now comes to the fore. All of this is completely unpredictable. And because one can never predict the future in language or in technology, uh, I'm quite sure that other fresh domains of applied linguistic analysis are going to emerge as time goes by. I'd like to ask you a little more about both those uh, both those domains, as those in particular have, uh, have been the focus of a lot of your recent work. Uh, taking the case of uh, Shakespeare in original pronunciation, uh, you mentioned earlier how uh, Beowulf never really came alive to you until we wished to hear how it would have sounded. Um, I imagine for Shakespeare the case was, was somewhat different, as you're so familiar with his work. How, how did it feel to hear the uh, original sound, so to speak? Well, it felt very exciting and very plausible. That's the thing. Um, you, you know, when you're... When you're Working with historical phonology, um, as I discovered in my very first year at the university, uh, there are uncertainties all over the place. Nobody knows exactly how these sounds were pronounced in the sense that with, with phonetic precision, they know roughly how they're pronounced. Um, so you, you have choices to make all the time when you're analysing the early history of, of, of a language and you make those choices. Uh, and, and the interesting thing is, is are those choices going to sound right? Does it sound like a plausible accent that would have been around at the time, whether we're talking about Anglo-Saxon or Chaucer or, or Shakespeare or whatever? And so that was the exciting bit to have made a set of choices to train the actors in these choices 
um, to make sure that the accent was coherent and systematic and consistent insofar as it's possible to do it, uh, and then to hear the result on stage. Um, and, and that was the best bit, to actually hear the reconstruction of an accent um, living on stage in a very, very persuasive sort of way. Audiences loved it. Um, and the evidence is the fact that the globe, having uh, just dipped their toe into this water um, in 2004, decided that it was such a successful experiment. They repeated it in 2005 with the production of Trollis and Cressida. And since then, other companies around the world have picked up the original pronunciation baton and decided to do productions themselves. Last year, 2010, in the University of Kansas, there was an OP production of A Midsummer Night's Dream, which was extraordinarily successful and will be available soon on DVD. And this year, 2011, uh, the University of Nevada, um, the theatre department there, is going to put on an original pronunciation production of Hamlet, um, which again will be available uh, in due course. So the OP movement, as I call it, is really taking off and going well beyond Shakespeare. Um, when the British Library in 2010 decided to have uh, an exhibition on the English language, the first in its history, uh, I was the consultant on it. And we decided that they were going to they would we would put in an audio dimension to the history of English. It wasn't just going to be texts and manuscripts and first folios and Caxton and all the rest, but we were going to put in an audio dimension to the whole thing. So we spent a lot of time reconstructing Beowulf, uh, for example, in Old English pronunciation and Chaucer and the Paston letters and Shakespeare and lots of other things besides. And this produced, again, one of the most fascinating aspects of the whole exhibition. When you walked into the British Library room, what you saw was not just the books and everything around in, in uh, containers, but you saw headphones everywhere and you saw people listening avidly to these reconstructed versions. Now, once again, you know, there's no magic here. Nobody's saying that this is at the only kind of pronunciation that would have been available at the time, but it is a plausible pronunciation of what would have been available at the time. And it's this kind of uh, fresh plausibility, this, this freshness of, of hearing that adds a hitherto rather neglected dimension to the whole business of the history of language. And so the Shakespeare was, was the beginning of what is turning out to be really rather a large subject, with not just linguists involved, incidentally, um, and, and literary people, musicians too. Um, early music specialists are just as interested in the early history of uh, pronunciation and reinterpreting some of the words of Elizabethan madrigals, for example, in an OP sort of way. And people interested in heritage sites, uh, you know, invite you back to how England was in the 16th century or how America was in the 17th century and, and in, interested in introducing an OP perspective to the interaction with their customers. So it's becoming quite a big subject now. Is there a distinctive satisfaction for you associated with the uh, with the literary dimension, or or is it of the same uh, character as your uh, fascination with language in general in a professional capacity? Oh, the, the theatre world is an enticing world, um, no question about it. Um, I mean, I, I've I've always been in it, uh, in the sense that, uh, and this is largely unrelated to the. Um, language theme, so it doesn't loom large in the book. Uh, but, I mean, I, in school, I was always in school theatre productions. 
um, at university uh, similarly um, and wrote a couple of plays for the you know, English department annual Christmas party, that kind of thing. And over the years, um, I've done quite a lot of uh, amateur playwriting um, and acted in repertory companies and all of this. So there's always been that kind of reward that comes from the theatrical uh, set, setting. Um, and actually, I don't think there's that much difference between being an actor and being a lecturer, uh, because both have to do the same sort of audience involvement in certain ways. And all this was reinforced when our youngest son, Ben, uh, became an actor, a professional actor himself, um, and became specially interested in Shakespeare. Uh, and so I suddenly found myself um, involved in a rather different kind of uh, collaboration, not just with colleagues, but with, um, you know, your own son in uh, co-writing books and uh, sharing experiences in the theatrical domain. So it's been a very different kind of uh, experience, um, very different set of feelings associated with it, the sort of feelings that anybody would have who gets involved, gets involved in the theatre world. It is, as I say, a very enticing world. Um, I love working with theatre companies. There's a kind of um, camaraderie which uh, any actor knows uh, exists while you're a member of the company. Um, and when, a, when a, a production comes to an end, it's always quite a devastating moment for the members of that company. You've worked with them, you've got to know them, you love them. It's a tremendous, and it's, they say it's a lovey world, but it really is a lovey world. They, they, there is an intensity of emotion that comes when you work with, on a play like that. And I found myself part of that at the Globe and also since with other companies. And I find it a wonderful experience. And of course, you unify your interest in theatre with your passion for uh, the maintenance of endangered languages in your own play, Living On. Could you tell us a little about it? Well, that was another um, uh, unanticipated development. Um, I don't see myself as a playwright. I'll put it another way. I've written a lot of praise, but I'm, I'm the world's best failed playwright. Um, I used to uh, write a lot uh, of, of um, television scripts and things like that in the 1980s, I think it was, uh, really just to see whether I could do it. Um, I, I like exploring genres. I've, I've had a go at all sorts of things. I've, I've uh, tried to write novels, I've tried to write plays, I've tried to write poems and so on. And some of them are absolute disasters uh, uh, and the world will never see the uh, absolutely abysmal uh, novels that I wrote once upon a time, they're all birds. Um, the plays uh, I had a go at and sent them to various uh, companies, but they, they weren't very good and they never got anywhere. So I thought I was uh, really not going to, I mean, I just left it aside. You know, I've tried it, didn't work, go on to something else. But then coincidentally, um, in the mid-1990s, as the endangered language situation became more apparent, the, the fact that something like half the languages in the world are so seriously endangered that they're probably going to die out in the present century. Language dying out somewhere in the world every two weeks on average. Um, and this became, we all became aware of this in the early 1990s. And as the 1990s proceeded, I realized that, as always, there was an applied area that needed to be explored here. Um, and I started to write a book on the subject, which eventually came out called Language Death uh, a few years later, and started to write articles. And one of the articles was published in um, Profile um, magazine. And it happened to be read by Greg Doran, who was a theatre director. 
and is currently Associate Theatre Director at the Royal Shakespeare Company in Stratford. But at the time, he was an independent, um, working with smaller theatres. And he read this article and he rang me up and said, look, didn't I think that there was a, 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 a dramatic presentation of the endangered language situation, which was worth exploring? And it so happened that he was uh, directing a play at Theatre Cluid, which is just down the road from where I live in Hollyhead. And so we arranged to meet and he came over here to the house and we talked about this and we concluded that, yes, there was a, a real possibility that there were all kinds of notions that could deserve being put on stage, especially the concept of a last speaker. The idea of a last speaker of a language is a highly charged, dramatic notion. So we talked about who might do this, who might write this play, and we explored various uh, playwrights and they all turned out to be too busy or or simply unaware, not interested or unaware of the language situation. Because, you know, how do you write a play if you don't know the subject? So there were two options. One is we kept we would keep trying to find a playwright to whom we could teach about language endangerment, or we could find a language endangered uh, specialist who could become a playwright. So I happened to mention that I'd had a go at writing some plays. So Greg says, well, why don't you have a go at it, you see? So I said, all right. Um, and to cut the story short, uh, eventually did write this play, sent it in to him. First version was lousy, he told me, um, and said, have another go. Uh, and I'd had another go, and the second version was a bit better, and the third version was a bit better. So Greg really taught me how to write a play in this respect. And in the end, the play, Living On, uh, was finished. And Greg was going to produce it and direct it. Um, but then, unfortunately, as things happened, um, not his point of view, but from mine, he uh, got appointed to the RSE in Stratford and, and Shakespeare took up all his interest. I took, really, I took that really badly. You know, I mean, Shakespeare's had plenty of opportunity to have his plays <laughs> produced and mine hadn't. So I was really a bit miffed with Shakespeare at that point. But anyway, um, Greg kept an interest in it and uh, um, I developed the play a little bit more and then put it online and started doing extracts from it at readings in various places and eventually uh, one or two people took it up and it had a, uh, a couple of readings here and there one in London um, it's never had a full West End production though or a full theatre production and this I think is not for want of trying but it simply isn't mainstream theatre um, the notion of endangered language you know it's not the sort of um, can't see it as a musical, for example, particularly. Uh, and so although we did try circulating it to a few of the main London theatres, nobody showed particular. They all said it was very good. I mean, I was quite pleased that they all thought it was a fine play, but none of them uh, took it up as a, as a box office commercial profit-making enterprise. So I think it's been produced a couple of times in various parts of the world by, you know, student theatre companies and things like that. In fact, I know it has. Um, but it still awaits its uh, its Shaftesbury Avenue opening, I, or Broadway opening, I fear. Well, we wish you every success with it in the future. <laughs> I hope to see it. I'm not holding my breath, Chris. I'd like briefly to ask you about another um, theme which is which recurs throughout your book and another application of applied linguistics uh, to a, to an potentially rather contentious domain, uh, namely the um, the topic of theolinguistics, the interaction between language and religion, and the, uh, particularly the topic of the vernacular translation of the mass. Uh, how do you feel about that apparently finally coming to fruition and into use? Well, this is a, a, an interest which 
uh, again, doesn't loom large in the book. This is one of the big differences between autobiography and memoir. Um, <coughs> I don't talk about my politics. I don't talk about my religion, except indirectly at one or two places where there was a, a kind of overlap with, with language. But um, I was uh, brought up um, a Catholic uh, and um, have remained one, and I'm an active one, I'm a committed one. Um, and so I always have had that kind of uh, motivation to explore the uh, consequences of uh, religion for language. Um, in the last 20 years, a completely different um, uh, interest in religious thinking has come up because I'm editing the poetry of a very neglected uh, poet called John Bradburn. Mm -hmm. um, so which isn't particularly theolinguistic, but it sort of illustrates the way in which um, there is a contact between my world and, and the religious world. Now, in the 1960s, it was, again, being in the right place at the right time. It was an extraordinary decade as far as language was concerned in relation to religion. All sorts of things were going on. Uh, and in particular, the Vatican Council was uh, introducing this shift from Latin to the vernacular. And people were exploring all over the place what kind of vernacular English or French or German or whatever it was uh, people were going to use in order to um, uh, reinterpret that particular uh, religious tradition efficiently. Uh, of course, in the Anglican tradition, the, the vernacular had been around a long time and all of the but they, too, were having their explorations about whether it was. The, whether a modernized version of their liturgy was going to be more effective than the traditional version of their liturgy. And so this, plus a lot of other um, theological um, language-related issues, this was a time of logical positivism, for example, with A.J. Eyre and the others arguing that you know, religious language was meaningless. And all of these things came together. And in fact, the very first book I ever wrote personally was called Linguistics, Language and Religion. Um, so that kind of overlap, which was eventually called theolinguistics, not by me, I hasten to add, uh, but by somebody else. But I took up the term and certainly tried to popularize it, um, was always a strong force. And what's always rather uh, irritated me over the past 40 years is that the people who are concerned with developing uh, language in the service of religion, on the whole, aren't very professional about it. There are very few. In fact, I don't know of any professional linguists that have been approached um, to add their contribution to the thinking that has produced the, uh, the various translations and so on over the years. There have been lots of philological contributions, of course. You know, people specializing in Hebrew and Greek and, and Latin in relation to English. But I don't know of any English language linguist um, apart from myself briefly in the 1960s, who was ever approached by, uh, for example, the International Committee on English in the Liturgy uh, to add a linguistic or sociolinguistic or even psycholinguistic or these days a pragmatic perspective about the way in which um, English should be used. And especially now that English is a global language, um, there seems to be a complete lack of awareness about the, the distinctive of linguistic distinctiveness of the various varieties of English around the world, which simply doesn't seem to have come through in the uh, in the current translations. So I've um, I've been observing the the new uh, translation that's coming in in uh, 2011 um, and seeing 
the way in which the uh, there's been a kind of seesawing from the, the two extremes of the stylistic spectrum, where at one extreme you get a very chatty, colloquial, down-to-earth, almost at times monosyllabic style, and at the other extreme you get a more learned, uh, faithful to the origins, especially Latin, rather more polysyllabic style. Um, and I've seen the change take place. There is a, a middle of the road, I think, that might have been less contentious. Um, but that kind of uh, balanced perspective doesn't seem to have been taken into account. So I'm expecting there to be, well, already is a bit of controversy about it. Um, I expect it will settle down, just as there was controversy in the 1960s, and it settled down. Um, eventually, uh, people will get used to the new translation as they got used to the old one. But I think it could have been handled a little more um, judiciously. Well, it's very interesting to get your professional perspective on it as one of the few people, as, as you say, who has been uh, actively involved in that question. We're very grateful for your time. I'm conscious that I've probably taken up rather more than I promised I would. Uh, to talk very briefly then about uh, about your future work and your ongoing work, uh, as you say, the uh, work on the in the first place on internet linguistics, uh, and then specifically your um, commercial venture in terms of uh, semantic indexing, has, as you said, put you in a very different position to uh, perhaps how you expected to be spending this uh, stage of your career. It was a complete surprise. Um, the the time it would take to sort out the problem. Um, the problem was clear cut and the solution was clear cut. Um, but how long it would take to sort out, I had no idea. Uh, the problem was very simple. Um, uh, the advertisers on the Internet find that their ads are being located on pages where they don't want them to be. Uh, so one of the first examples was um, uh, a CNN page on a street stabbing in Chicago, uh, a news report about a, a murder, and the ads down the side said, buy your knives here, get your knives on eBay, and so on. Um, now, this was totally inappropriate because the advertisers, the cutlery advertisers, didn't want their, their product to be associated with, um, with, with murder, and it was irrelevant apart from anything else. Uh, and it's easy to see what the problem was. The stupid software had simply gone through the page, found the word knife turning up fairly frequently, went to the advertising inventory, looked for the word knife there, found it and associated the two, uh, being unaware that the sense of knife meaning weapons is quite different from the sense of knife meaning cutlery. So that was the problem. How do you solve it? You solve it by a semantic approach. You have to anticipate analysing all the um, the different meanings, the different senses of the words in English, how many senses has the word knife got, and similarly for all the words in the language, because, of course, any word could turn up on any page and attract any advertisement, and that's what took the time. When the company that first introduced me to this area started the project, this was in 1996 or seven. I had no idea how long it would take, but in fact it took me and a team of, well, there were about 40 lexicographers, something like three years to slog our way through an English dictionary, word by word, sense by sense, uh, to try and work out all these ambiguities. I mean, think of a word like apple, for instance, and how many meanings that has got, you know, in computing and in the Beatles and in the fruit sense and so on and so forth. Um, 
So we did that. And at the, at the end, we had a hugely powerful engine, which we called a sense engine. Um, and this eventually was developed by a, a company I set up myself and then eventually in collaboration with um, other another company, AdPepper Media. Um, and they brought the thing to a successful conclusion. There, there are now two products out there. One is called iSense, um, which really tries to ensure that ads are relevant to the content of the page. And the other is called Sight Screen, which ensures that ads do not appear on a page where, which has sensitive content. You know, it's a pornographic page or a page about drugs or gambling or whatever it might be. And both of these products are now available. And it was great to see an applied linguistic idea actually be brought to fruition in this way. So that period um, is, in a sense, over for me now. Um, I don't any longer work specifically with the uh, advertising world, but it was a period of about 15 years of fairly intensive work. But you ask about the future. And the, the interesting question is, is that nobody knows uh, what the future is going to be. Uh, and therefore, nobody knows the nature of the linguistic problems that we're going to encounter. Uh, it's a world that is moving so fast, the, the Internet. You just don't know what's going to happen next year. Uh, I mean, in 2005, if you had said to me, to go back to the trope I was using earlier on, that uh, the biggest thing in the next stage of the Internet is going to be SMS for the Internet, that people are going to want to send their text messages online uh, in 140 characters so that everybody will be able to see that you're eating cornflakes for breakfast or getting stuck in a lift. Again, I'd have said you were crazy. But of course, Twitter arrives in 2006 and you get a completely different linguistic world emerging as a consequence. Now, looking ahead over the next 20 years or so, what's going to happen? Well, all sorts of things are going to happen. One is that the Internet is going to become a much more audio world than a, a written world. Uh, speech to text and text to speech are going to become big, big players, uh, bigger, much bigger than they are at the moment. And these are going to present all kinds of fresh linguistic problems. Uh, the whole business of um, uh, the Internet becoming increasingly multilingual is uh, it already is highly multilingual. It's going to become even more so. Um, and with um, multilingualism is going to come an increased emphasis on automatic translation uh, at the moment. Very poor quality, but in 50 years time, it's going to be brilliant. And automatic interpretation, the Babelfish concepts, shove the Babelfish in your ear and at the other end, somebody will speak to you in French and you'll understand it translated into English or whatever two languages happen to be. All of this is primitive, primitive at the moment. But, you know, think 50 years, think 100 years and you can see that there are fresh linguistic worlds just waiting to be explored. Well, and I'm sure we wish you every success in exploring them. I think you'll... Well, not me personally, but my I'm children, maybe. <laughs> uh, I'm, I think you uh, do yourself an injustice. <laughs> but in the meantime, David Crystal, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. We've been talking to Professor David Crystal about his book, Just a Phrase I'm Going Through, My Life in Language. This is Chris Cummins for New Books in Language, saying thank you for listening.